0: Baptist Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining me and let me say Merry Christmas to you and your family. Uh, Because we are in the uh, Christmas holiday season now, I've decided to set aside our ongoing verse by verse study of the book of Revelation to take about uh, four podcasts. I think I'll take the next four uh, to just Uh, cover this beautiful and wonderful story of the birth of Christ, the coming of our Lord into the world. There's really nothing quite like this Christmas season called Advent by many groups and so on. It's the coming of Christ, the actual amazing, miraculous... Really greatest event that's ever happened in the history of the world, that God the Creator would come into the world to live among His creation, to be a man, to live among men, to die for man, to rise from the dead, to save man from our own uh, sins and, and and the consequences of our sins. So it's just an amazing story, and I've always loved Christmas. It's always been by far my favorite time of the year, and I know many of you share that Uh, sentiment exactly. So I thought it'd be fitting that we take a couple of lessons uh, and go through the Christmas story. Nothing uh, necessarily new, but maybe to give a little bit more detail to it from the gospel accounts. So uh, let me just jump right into this and, and talk about the birth of Christ. First of all, Uh, we know that the main emphasis in the Gospels and in really in all the Bible and the New Testament is not the birth of Christ, but the great passion of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. And and yet, I think sometimes there's uh, extremes that could be taken about the Christmas event and its importance. Some groups, as you know, uh, think it's pagan to celebrate Christmas or in any way recognize it. I totally disagree with that position. I think it's only fitting that we would recognize and celebrate uh, a time each year that recognizes Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, coming in uh, to the human race. Um, Yes, I know all the controversy and debate about December 25th. Are we sure that Jesus was born on December 25th? No, we're not, and he probably wasn't. But that, that doesn't change the fact that he was born. He did come into the world. So don't let yourself be... Uh, too confused or caught up in all the debate about a day. We know it's right to celebrate, to, to worship, to praise the fact that our God loved us and loved the world so much that He came into the world uh, for us. You know, those wise men that we'll eventually get to their uh, story here, I'm sure, uh, they uh, went to great lengths to come and worship the Christ child, and you and I ought to take from their uh, example. And so, uh, of course, the other extreme, not not just the extreme of those who don't celebrate Christmas, uh, claiming that's more spiritual or that we're in some way wrong to celebrate it. But then you have, of course, the commercialization, the secularization of Christmas. We would totally be against that. Of course, all the Santa Claus and reindeer and, and Christmas decorations, all, all of that has its place. I'm not a killjoy or, a, you know, I don't want to act like i'm raining on your parade about those kind of things um i'm not against that we decorate and celebrate and give gifts and exchange gifts and and i think that that could be part of it but of course the main emphasis should be christ without christ there'd be no christmas without his birth there'd be no celebration so uh you know where i'm coming from from that now let me jump into the gospel accounts and just back to the emphasis of of the uh, death of Christ and His resurrection compared to the birth, there's only four chapters really out of all the the uh, chapters in the four Gospels. Um, only four of them are designated to deal with the birth of Christ, and they're not exclusively just about the birth of Christ. Several parts in those chapters are dealing with the the uh, forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. So uh, we could say that the, uh, those four chapters are about the events and the setting and the leading up to and the actual coming of Christ and his birth and at Bethlehem and, and all the story of Mary and Joseph. We're going to cover all that. But it's only four chapters, and so um, I thought maybe that's why I I thought about taking four uh, podcasts to cover this, because I'll try to just kind of take a little bit of each of these four chapters. Maybe not uh, a chapter per podcast. There's going to be more in Luke than there is in Matthew. Uh, Matthew and Luke, uh, both chapters 1 and 2, are are set aside to deal with the birth of Christ. uh, Matthew's the shorter of the two. Luke goes into a a lot more detail, uh, but even then, we won't necessarily cover all the parts in Luke uh, chapter one that 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 uh, present the birth of John the Baptist. It's important, deserves its own study, and we're studying the gospel of Luke uh, actually in our uh, adult Bible study here at our church on Sunday mornings, and we just went through it. We're a little ways into Luke now, but a while back, a few months ago, we studied in detail those uh, chapters, and that's all on our Facebook live streaming. You can go back and and find those, I hope, and uh, and 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 listen to those. If you're interested, watch those uh, different uh, studies in Luke. But anyway, um, let's get get into the events of the actual birth of Christ. Which what makes it so special? Uh, well, first of all, let's talk about what leads up to the birth of Christ. You have to remember that the Old Testament. Uh, closes in around 400 B.C., to put it in some time frame, with the uh, prophet Malachi, which is the last of the 39 books of the Old Testament in the canon of the order that they're put. Uh, and around 400 BC is when the Old Testament closes, and so for 400 years—imagine how long that is. Our country's only—it's not even 250 years old as a country, the United States—and so it's uh, even longer than that. God did not speak uh, or give written revelation uh, to mankind. I don't want you to think God was asleep or wasn't doing anything. God never sleeps or slumbers, the Bible says, uh, but He didn't give any written, inspired revelation. And so for 400 years, they often call it the silent years, the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments, and we know that the uh, the silence, if you will, was broken by the angel Gabriel being sent by God, not actually first to to Mary up in Nazareth where she was living, but first to uh, Zechariah the. Uh, uh, the father of John the Baptist, of course, and his wife Elizabeth, who would have this very special um, son named John. And so during those 400 years, a lot uh, of things were happening in the world. Even though there was no scripture being inspired by God through various writers like he did in the Old and then in the New Testaments. Uh, we know, for instance, at the close of the Old Testament, the Medo-Persian Empire was still basically in power over the world, uh, but not long after the close of the Old Testament. The Greek Empire under Alexander the Great would uh, become the dominant world power for uh, really being uh, about three centuries, although it would splinter after the death of Alexander and his four sons would take over different parts of the Greek Empire. But then the major empire, the the most uh, dominant and fearsome uh, empire uh, of any time period in history, the Roman Empire. Uh, really came to its forefront, though it was birthed a lot earlier than the first century B.C. That's when it really came to power, was made famous by Julius Caesar and all the events of his assassination, you know, all that. Well, what leads up to our New Testament and the story of the birth of Christ is how that uh, a series of of Caesars, especially the Caesar that will be on the throne when Jesus is born, His name was Augustus Caesar, uh, and he was uh, basically in the line of Caesars after Julius Caesar, and then uh, many would come after him, of course, before the toppling of the Roman Empire about 500 years later. But anyway, uh, the Jewish people uh, living in Israel uh, were, of course, under the dominance, the oppression would be a better way of saying it, uh, of the Roman Empire. And even though they were allowed to have a, a king per se, at the time Jesus was born, we know there was a very wicked man who wasn't even Jewish. He wasn't even an Israelite. He was a, they could say an Idumean, a Gentile. Uh, he, his name was Herod, Herod the Great. And I don't have time to get into a lot of the details. There's plenty of history for you to read and verify these things. But for sake of time, we'll just say that Herod uh, was a puppet leader over uh, Israel. Israel was really separated into several provinces, maybe like we would call states today. The, The main ones that you need to understand and we need to remember in the story is Galilee up in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south. Now, Judea was the largest and the most important of those three, mainly because it had the capital of Jerusalem uh, in its territory. And So, Jerusalem, uh, as we know, was the great capital city from way back in 1000 BC when David conquered the Jebusites and set up the kingdom of Israel there, and it was the uh, capital uh, through many centuries, and even though they were overrun and taken over by the Babylonians and uh, the Uh, Medo-Persians, the Greeks, then the Romans. The city still remained the focal point because of the temple. Now, the first temple of Solomon, as you know, you know your Old Testament history. It had been destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians, but uh, we know uh, in 516... Uh, 70 years later, it was completed, a second new temple, smaller temple at first, uh, by a guy named Zerubbabel, who was their leader. And, and it was added onto by Herod, this man Herod, trying to get uh, some acclaim and support from the Jewish people. He uh, renovated and added to the temple. And that temple uh, that was rebuilt and added to by Herod, would be the very temple that Jesus would walk in and would, would preach in and heal people in and do all the miracles, and he would be crucified right outside of the gates of that city of Jerusalem. But that kind of leads us to what was happening uh, at the birth of Christ. So I want to jump into Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, let's just cover uh, just briefly. We won't have time for real great detail, but enough that you can somewhat understand these stories and maybe rejoice in them more. Why is it important to read these stories? I've probably read the Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke um, hundreds of times personally and teaching and preaching out of them, but they never lose their their aura, their their beauty, their extraordinary appeal. I always say in preaching that Jesus... Uh, had to be born the way he was, with all the intrigue, the drama, the majesty, the, the uh, amazing details uh, of all that happened. It was very fitting for he who would be the king and one day will reign over all the world. And yet he came the first time not to reign as king, but to die as the savior of the world. And so we're going to see a lot of that obscurity, that humility that our Lord showed. I might include, as you know, that I keep mentioning Matthew and Luke. Uh, Mark and John, the other two Gospels, uh, do not include the events uh, of the birth of Christ, and, and for good reason. First of all, Mark wrote his Gospel to the Roman reader, and Romans, the Roman people and mindset, Uh, did not give much credibility to children. They cared only about what a man or woman did, especially a man, it was a patriarchal society, when they grew up and accomplished things, what they did in their lives as a man. So they looked at children as kind of just, um, you might say, property, uh, chattel, just ownership. Uh, They weren't that important until they grew up and did something. And so that's why Mark... Uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, just skips through that. Not that he didn't believe it or not that his gospel would in some way deny it. Of course it doesn't, but it doesn't give any time to it. Now, John, uh, on the other hand, he has a a very uh, important reason why he does not include the birth of Christ. Uh, He actually uh, is stressing the deity of Christ and not the humanity. And so in an amazing way, instead of starting his gospel with the physical humanity of Christ coming into the world, he starts his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's all about deity. So, of course, stressing deity does not need the stressing of humanity. And so that just gives you a little reason why Mark and John do not include uh, the accounts. But now Matthew, we're going to start with him first. Matthew is writing to the Jewish reader. His gospel is is targeted towards the Jewish mindset. And the reason he writes his gospel is to present Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, especially in his royal majesty. He presents Jesus as king of the Jews. Now, of course, you're right. I already said it. He did not come to reign the first time, but still Matthew will establish his royal lineage, and that he has every right to reign, and that the Jews should believe on him. And even though they missed him, most of the Jews—not all—all the early, the apostles, early Christians were all Jewish, but most of the Jews uh, missed him because they were looking for a, a reigning Messiah only. They couldn't see the difference between the suffering Messiah first and the reigning Messiah second, and so. Matthew does present Jesus as the king of Israel, the, the uh, son of David and the line of David to fulfill the, what we call the Davidic covenant, as well as the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made when he promised that one would come through Abraham's line to the Jewish people and he would reign as Messiah, man and God at the same time. Jesus is the God-man, and so his birth stresses, of course, his humanity. Now, it's interesting as you start into Matthew 1, our whole New Testament starts with what we call a genealogy. In verses 1 through 17 of Matthew 1, and I'm not going to read all of it for sake of our time here on the podcast, but uh, don't skip over it. Uh, It's very important. I want to give you some highlights to it. First, we have to see this verse 1. How the whole New Testament starts is very telling. It says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a book. A book is a record. God is giving us now additional uh, inspired revelation that would be written. It would be written by inspired men as the Holy Spirit told them exactly what to write, but He's continuing His Word. The Old Testament had been completed 400 years earlier, but it's not complete standing alone. It needs the New Testament to fulfill all that it promised and, and, and pictured and pointed to. And so Jesus... It comes to fulfill all those promises that were made. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. That phrase, the generation, is found in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Genesis especially, but a little later too, about God continuing His story. And this is the continued story of God working in the world, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come into the world and be a man. So it calls Him the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And then from verse 2 to 17 Uh, Really, what Matthew does is describes Jesus coming uh, from Abraham, yes, because he's the first Jew. It's Abraham who starts the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, but he really traces his lineage through the royal line of David. That's why he said he's the son of David first in Matthew, then the son of Abraham, because in verse 6 of the genealogy, he says, and Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon. And so from Solomon after David, all the way through to the last verse where it includes Joseph, who of course not the real father of Christ. Biologically, we know he's not. But he is going to be like the foster father. It's, he's going to be the head of his home. And so he can trace it through the, the leader of the home that Jesus would be raised in. Look at verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph Now, since Joseph was not the real father of Christ, he changes the format and says, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And so, this genealogy, it's 42 generations, uh, three sets of 14. You can read them on your own. Let me just point to a couple of things that, that I think are important. One of them is that four women are mentioned in this genealogy. And each one of them has somewhat of a, uh, what's the best way to say it, a, a sordid uh, kind of a uh, negative side to them in some way. And, and not to, uh, to say that in any negative way towards them personally, but they're sinners just like all the men in this genealogy are, except for Christ. Everyone's a sinner, but it's like Matthew records the names of four women. And that's very unusual. Most of the genealogies in the Old Testament uh, and the New, and there's only really two in the New Testament, this one and the one Luke gave, and we might refer to it later, but uh, they usually don't even include the women. Uh, It's a very patriarchal society, and it was the men begetting the men. You get that word begat, which means to come forth from, to be born from, the the line of this man. You'll see the seed of the man uh, continued through his male offspring. Uh, But four women are mentioned. In verse 3, we see Tamar. Now, the New Testament sometimes adds a a, a letter that you don't find in the Old Testament. Don't let that confuse you. When we read an English translation of the Old Testament, it's from Hebrew. Sometimes the reading uh, or the translation changes the the way it's uh, written in English. And now we're getting a, a translation from Greek in the New Testament. So that's what causes a little bit of the... Uh, variation in the reading, but we know who the people are. They're the same people. Tamar, or Thamar, as she's called in verse 3, uh, that's the first woman. And that was that story of Judah. Uh, and he has these these twin sons through his daughter-in-law. It's very sordid, like I told you, very illicit, very sinful type story. Uh, so, she's the first woman. In verse 5, we have Rahab. Rahab is, is how she's called her, but it's Rahab uh, from the story of of Joshua, remember Rahab? She was a former harlot. She comes to faith in the God of Israel. She hides those two spies on the, on her roof as they had come in to spy out the city of Jericho before it would be taken by the the Jewish people, uh, according to God's command. She married a man named Boaz. Uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, she married Solomon uh, actually, uh, and begat Boaz. That was her son. And, and Boaz, verse 5, says, Begat Obed, member of Ruth. There's our third woman. Remember the little book of Ruth named after her? She was a Moabite. So you got Rahab, who's a Canaanite. She wasn't even a Jew uh, and was a former harlot. You have Ruth, a Moabite. She's not a, a Jew either. Uh, and yet she's brought in this story because in a beautiful way, she, she marries uh, this man, Boaz, a beautiful love story, that little book of Ruth is. You you should study it and read it if you haven't already and you don't know it well. Uh, but from them comes a little boy named Obed. And Obed has a son when he gets married later in life. This is just tracing the men here now. And Jesse's their son. And Jesse's the one that has uh, the, the, uh, the eight sons. And one of those sons uh, is David. Uh, and then in verse Six, we have our fourth and last woman in the genealogy. It says, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her. Now, her name isn't given, but we know she is very well. Her story is really uh, the, the one blot, the one black mark, the one taint on the life of David when he committed adultery with this woman Bathsheba and ends up having Solomon later. Um, this is her story. It says, and David begat Solomon of her, that's Bathsheba, that had been the wife of Uriah. Remember, David had Uriah killed as well. So I find that really amazing. And then as you go through the genealogy from from verse 7 on, you really have a listing of the kings of Judah. uh, Because remember, the kingdom split after Solomon died, and his son Rehoboam, who's just called Roboam in verse 7, it's Rehoboam in the Old Testament. Um, he continues the, the Davidic line over Judah. It's Judah that will be important because Jesus, the Messiah, will be born not only from David's line, but of course in a, in a kind of raising the funnel upward, up in a bigger uh, uh, look at the tribe of Judah that David came from. And you trace those kings. By the way, there's this man, Sieltiel, uh, in uh, verse 12. Look what who he, he gave birth to, Zerubbabel. Remember Zerubbabel I mentioned? He was rightfully the king, though he didn't rule as a king because the land was still under the Medo-Persians, but he was the one who came back and led in the building of the second temple I referred to. And then you go all the way through, back to, uh, head to verse 16, as I told you, and it ends with, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away into Babylon... That's when the Jews were carried away in Babylon by the captivity, are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon uh, unto Christ are 14 generations. So there you have those 42 generations that I mentioned. Well, that, that's an amazing beginning. To not only the life of Christ but the entire New Testament, it sets a stage for the historicity, the validity, the the veracity, the truth of Jesus Christ being a real man. Do you know? So many people today are are misled and, and they're lied to by uh, the the unsaved, the ungodly media and, and atheistic world uh, system we live in, and they they downplay and downgrade and and. Uh, Uh, disclaim the Bible as being a bunch of myths and fairy tales and legends and it's not true. Um, This is not a legend. This is not a nursery rhyme. You wouldn't put this kind of detail in a book that could not be verified. All these people's names and all these events and places and people. And so this shows you a genealogy is to verify that the Bible is true. Well, let me go on and just give this brief account uh, in chapter 1 of the birth of Christ. Uh, so he goes on and in, in, in his writing, Matthew does. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. I'm reading from the King James. It may be a little bit different if you're reading from another English version. But it means in this way. This is how he was born. When as his mother, Mary was espoused or betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, remember, betr- uh, betrothal or espousal in those days was binding it's not the same as engagement today. It's We think it's like it, but their betrothal or spousal was binding in the sense that it was like you were already married, but you didn't consummate the marriage and live together yet. The groom or husband-to-be would, would have to go out and, and prepare a home for his family, make sure he had his finances in order. In fact, usually the parents who were very involved in the setting up of these marriages, and it wasn't blind arranged marriages, but they had uh, some input more than they do today. And by the way, I could just say I think it's a wise thing to have parents involved in their kids' decisions in marriage. Not, not We're not talking about blind arranged marriages, but we're talking about parents and older people who have wisdom, and the Jewish people were smart about that. Anyway, so the the, the man, the groom-to-be, the husband-to-be would have his uh, father especially Uh, make sure he was ready to get married, he could provide for a wife and potential children later. And so uh, when it's found, well, they were already, of course, espoused, but the big predicament, uh, the amazing (laughs) predicament, uh, what a conundrum to be in, uh, before they actually came together, that's a a very sexual statement, before they came together and, of course, consummated the marriage, Mary is found with child. She's pregnant. Now, this man Joseph, who really uh, is kind of overshadowed, overrated, uh, it seems, by so many other great people in the New Testament, uh, he doesn't get enough credit, uh, credit uh, but he deserves a lot of, of our recognition. What a great man he was, and he was in such a bad place. He finds out that Mary is pregnant. We know from Luke, when we go to Luke, we'll see a little bit more detail, uh, that he finds out. Uh, probably after she comes back from the little trip she took to meet her cousin Elizabeth. But I don't want to uh, kind of dovetail into that gospel account too much. But when he finds out, uh, of course, he's greatly upset. He hasn't been with Mary. Uh, he's a pure, a godly Jewish man. He knows what the law says, that, that sexuality is saved and, and, and kept for marriage. And when he finds out that his bride-to-be that he's already engaged or espoused to, is the best way to put it, uh, is already with child, he is he is just broken hearted, doesn't know what he's going to do. Here's his choices. Verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately. Now, here's what you could do if this situation came up. And let's face it, in every other situation, it would have been a, a, an act of adultery, unless she had been raped and whatever that could be considered but uh, Joseph's choices were pretty pretty slim. One, he could actually uh, take her to the public square with a rabbi and the people there in Nazareth where he lived. And according to the law of Moses in the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by stoning. He could have had her stoned to death. But he was not going to do that. He loved Mary even though he was brokenhearted and probably could not, you know, may have still blamed her, didn't know what happened. Uh, He wasn't going to have her executed, of course, so he thinks about having her put away privately, which just means uh, they would send a woman away, away from her uh, town or village or whatever, so she can have the baby uh, in secrecy, and and the baby, of course, would, would be taken care of. It wasn't the baby's fault that this happened, so that's what he was thinking on. But God, who is never late, but is seldom early when we think He should be or we want Him to be, God has His own timing. Listen to how how this works out. It's a beautiful thought. Verse 20, but while He thought on these things, I think it was the very night that Joseph maybe, I, I picture in my mind that Mary comes back from her visit with Elizabeth, Joseph by then can see she's showing her pregnancy Uh, in some way. Uh, We don't know how far along exactly she was, but probably now showing she couldn't hide it. Uh, And then maybe that very night as he goes to sleep, he couldn't sleep well. He was just torn apart in his heart and mind. What am I going to do? He's probably thinking about how I'm going to, where am I going to take her? How can I, uh, you know, get this stigma away from her? The very night it says, while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord we don't know who that is for sure, because in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appeared to be Christ himself. But here the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, thou son of David. See, he's in that line. He's an important man. He lives in a little obscure village called Nazareth up in Galilee. He's, he's not even living in his hometown of Bethlehem where his, his lineage is from, where David, uh, his, his, his forefather, was from. He's living up in Nazareth. He's a carpenter. He's obscure. Nobody really knows him other than his his family and the people in that little village. But he's going to be an important man in history here. And the angel comes and says, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Wow. Here we have this important and special precious doctrine known as the virgin birth. The world scoffs at it, denies it, but the Bible clearly teaches it. Jesus was born by a biological miracle. He was not born the regular way you and I are, by, by the man and woman coming together in, in sexual intimacy. No, God the Father through the Holy Spirit. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. This is a Trinitarian work. The Spirit places in the womb of Mary this fertilized egg, if you will, that she, that in her womb would grow this body, this physical body of the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's, you say, can I fully understand that? No, it doesn't matter if I can understand it. The Bible teaches it. God who created the universe just by speaking the word in six literal 24-hour days, he can do whatever he wants. And he put that body of his son in this great mission for his son to come to earth. He put his body in the womb of Mary. And that's what this angel tells Joseph. And he goes on to say these great things about who he'll be. He says, and she shall bring forth a son, verse 21, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's exactly what the word Jesus means. Look at all capital letters in our King James Version. What it simply means that the name Jesus, the the title, his name, that's his earthly name. It's very interesting. When it was written originally in Greek, there was no English equivalent for it. And so the translators in English just took the the Greek word, Jesus, and transliterated and made it a, a new English word, a new English name. And there's nothing wrong with the name. It's a good name. It's the right name. Now, in the Old Testament, it would be Yeshua or Joshua, as it's translated, his name, Jesus, is the same as the Old Testament name, Joshua. You'll even see some uh, interchanging of that name at several times in the New Testament. But anyway, the name means one who saves his people. Uh, just like Joshua, the Old Testament. Remember the second hand man to Moses? He literally saved his people by taking them over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. It was a picture of Christ. And so Jesus is our Savior. He shall save his people from their sins. And then Matthew goes on and he does something that he's going to do more than any other gospel writer. He's going to stress the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Now all this was done. It had to be done this way because the Old Testament foretold it. It predicted it and God's word can never be broken. When God makes a promise, he always keeps it. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying... Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. We know this is a direct quote from Isaiah 7, 14. What an amazing fulfillment, a virgin. That's a sign. See, behold, a virgin, the Lord shall give a sign. If you read the whole passage, he doesn't give you every word. Sometimes when the New Testament is referring to or quoting the Old Testament. It doesn't do it word for word. It doesn't include the whole verse. Sometimes it's verbatim. Here he doesn't say, the Lord shall give you a sign. Uh, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. He didn't mention the sign. Well, the sign was the virgin birth. Uh, There there would be no sign or miracle or something to look and and watch for if it was just a young woman uh, bearing a son. They do it all the time. But a virgin having a son, that's never happened. Before this, the birth of Christ would never happen after his birth. So that would be a sign, all right. And I love where it says he shall be called Emmanuel. And that even tells you what it is in case you don't know what that word means. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. A beautiful song we sing in one of the many carols at Christmas. God with us. Those three words have changed all of the history of the world. They've changed my life. If you're a Christian that they've changed your life, God is with us. No other faith besides Christianity, no other religious spiritual system has ever taught that their deity became a part of the human race and lived among men and experienced what we would experience and took upon himself our sins and died in our place as a substitute and then rose from the dead that death and sin and hell could be uh, defeated and we could have eternal life. This is an amazing thing. Well, let me get this done for today. So then Joseph being raised from sleep. Remember, he's in in some kind of a dream this whole time. Told all these things. He gets out of that predicament he was in. Then Joseph being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Wow. So Joseph, right in the nick of time, He gets out of this predicament. He's assured from God's angel that indeed she has not been unfaithful, that this child is a miraculous child. He is the promised, waited for Messiah. And as soon as he awakens, he goes and takes Mary. They already were engaged. And now imagine, even though she was looking with child already and there was probably all kinds of of, uh, rumors and, and gossip and all kinds of nonsense going on, he took her anyway to be his wife. And it says he knew her not. They did not have sexual relationship until after the birth of Christ. There'd be no question that she was a virgin, even when she gave birth to Christ, she still was. But notice this statement, her firstborn son. That's an important statement, okay? Uh, that tells you that she and Joseph would have other biological normal children by sexual intimacy after Jesus the fact they're mentioned in the gospel here in Matthew and Mark for, uh, again he has four brothers and at least two sisters because it Names it in the plural. These would be his half-brothers, of course, half-sisters, but that firstborn statement destroys this nonsense of the perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, believed by Roman Catholicism. It's a man-made pagan doctrine. It's not in the Bible. She had other children later. And so it says, and he called his name Jesus. It was the man's job when they would take the child to be circumcised and then to be named, as we'll see in Luke's account. We'll study it a little bit uh, later in another podcast coming up, but it's Joseph's job to name him. And he named him just what the angel said he would be called Jesus, the Savior of the world. Well, this beautiful account is so fitting for his life. We'll pick up in our next podcast to continue this account of Matthew, and then we'll uh, take a few podcasts to look at Luke's great account. And let me uh, just again wish you a wonderful Merry Christmas and holiday season. And remind you of our motto on every podcast we end with it. Conviction for truth and compassion for people. God bless you.